As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our weekend review. Yes, we're looking back on a Classico that left Barca fans unhappy, including Champagne Pappy, as Drake saw his big steak flake while Big Ben's Ferry and Rodrigo left the Belgrana in their wake. And it was a no-go for Pep and Co as Mo stole the show. Liverpool's win might have had greater finesse if not for the choices of a man named Nunes. Elsewhere, the Galaxy continue their playoff spell. The penalties weren't that great from RSL. Arsenal, Napoli and Union Berlin remain in their table-topping groove. Kylian Mbappe says he doesn't want to move and Juve still got plenty to prove. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who's played the same amount of Classicos as Real Madrid's Aiden Lazard. Taylor Rockwell, hello. <laughs> I saw that stat today and it made me laugh and laugh and now I'm laughing even more. Hi, Ryan Bailey. Why are you laughing at the misfortune of Eden Hazard, Taylor? It's not a joke. I think, I mean, it's kind of a joke. Uh, I think mostly just because it is a permanent reminder that signing a player for way too much money to come into a squad that is already very good doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get better and the team is going to get better. It means you might have to pay that player a lot of money. And you would have thought that maybe that lesson would have been driven home with Gareth Bale. But now they've got two, and I guess now they've got one. Uh, Maybe Real Madrid will learn that lesson long term. Probably not, though. Uh, there's been eight Classicos since Hazard moved to Madrid. Uh, both he and you undefeated in Classicos. That's the read I'm taking from it. Hey, I, I'll take that. Uh, yeah, no no draws, no losses. I, I'm, I'm doing great so far. There we go. We're all doing great. Joining us, Taylor, a man who'd never try to go it alone if he had a three-on-one situation and the chance to make it 2-0. Is that right, Graham Rutherford? <laughs> I like to think that I would have the vision to spot <laughs> other people within... My uh, vicinity, unlike, I assume you're referencing Darwin Nunes. Is that the reference you're making there? Where he refused to pass to uh, Mo Salah as Liverpool had a three-on-one against Manchester City and that could have been the game right there. But I feel like we need to give a little bit more credit to what I thought was a Hall of Fame intro from Ryan Bailey there. Yeah. And can you rewind <laughs> it back to, what go back to the, champ- there was Champagne Pape, which is obviously Drake, his, his nickname. And then there was a mention of a flake. Can you just go through that one again? Because that, that was sensational. Press the minus 15 button, Graham. I've got the time for that. 
Oh, come on. <laughs> I feel like that's Ryan admitting that he pulled it off flawlessly and doesn't want to have to do it again for fear that that time it won't work. Yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, joining us, gents, a man who's been running a fever all weekend long, Audi MLS Cup playoffs fever, Joe Lowry. Hello. Hello, Ryan. Yeah, the I just did not have Ryan saying champagne poppy in the British accent that he has on my bingo card today. I should have, right? I totally should have. Apparently, Drake made a bet on both Barcelona and Arsenal to win. It was some sort of parlay, and he bet $500,000, and it was going to net him about $2 million. That did not work, obviously. I don't know why anyone would have chosen to bet on Barcelona in that game against Real Madrid away from home when Eric Garcia was going to be in the starting lineup. We can talk about that later. <laughs> but, Ryan, just great work. You've already ruined my bingo card. I'm, I'm so excited for this show. You're very welcome. Did I say champagne pappy correctly? Because I've only ever seen it written down because I don't know just anything the, about Drake. I think you said it correctly. It's just that's how you say it versus how I would say it or someone else would say it. It Is just sounds... Poppy? Yeah, it's poppy, but Ryan's saying yeah. champagne pappy. Pappy. It's just... <laughs> like grandpappy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Chappy oh, pappy. Yeah, I feel like I that's what's happening there. I Excellent. could not get it together. Oh, man, wow. Just the, 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 the rhyming introduction, phenomenal. Joe taking it up a level by just firing shots at Eric Garcia <laughs> inside the first five or ten minutes is, is outstanding work and justified, I think, at the same time. Well, Graham was going to fire shots if I didn't yeah. get in the first blow. So, Graham, we back. can just Hold alternate later. Yeah, we'll come back to this. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, well, we have a live show coming up, by the way, ladies and gents. So we haven't reminded you yet on the feed, but uh, we are here to do so today. <laughs> November 20th, the opening day of the World Cup. Please, please come and see us in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, where we will be doing bants and hopefully I won't be as ill as I am right now because um, uh, spoiler alert not spoiler I have COVID everybody and mm. it's it kind of sucks at the moment so if I if I cough during this um, episode I do apologize right uh, if you have lost your taste by the t- by the time the live show comes around that that's going to make those jumps at the shoe much easier so there could be a benefit mm. from this some might say I've never had good taste though Graham to be fair some not me not, me. Not you. Oh, bless you. Bless your heart. My hand is in the air. Is that coming through the podcast? <laughs> can, you, can people hear that? Taylor, did you raise no? that for Applebee's or for Chili's or what? Like, what prompted you Hard to raise Rock that? Hard Rock Cafe hand? was really okay, the one that comes to mind first. Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, fair Cafe. enough. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All wonderful, wonderful establishments. We can all agree. But come and see us at the live show. Uh, ticket link in the description. Before we get to the big weekend games, guys, I wanted to turn your attention to the English Championship. I don't know if you're aware, but it is the drunkest league in the world at the moment. Um, there have been 14 games played, guys. Burnley atop. Uh, Graham, who's Burnley manager? Uh, Vincent Company. Vincent Company is Burnley manager, uh, doing a great job. Although they are top of the championship, winning six of their 14 games. They've drawn more games than they've won. They are top of the championship. Uh, Blackburn are fifth. They've got zero draws, but they've got more losses than Coventry, who are bottom. Uh, Reading a six, they have a negative five goal difference. Preston a 13th, they've scored and conceded fewer <laughs> goals than anybody else. This is from Michael Potts on Twitter, by the way. But Graham, um, gotta love the championship is my conclusion. So my mind goes back to, we got a question in a listener questions episode where we had to pick a championship team. Do you remember that question? My, uh, I suggested suggested Preston, who have scored eight goals in 15 games and somehow aren't struggling. They're actually doing relatively okay. I mean, 14th place, so not anywhere near relegation, but I can't imagine that their games have been very entertaining. So if anyone took me up on that suggestion of supporting Preston North End this season, I am desperately sorry and I can only apologise. 
Oh, the PNE faithful, not happy, Graham. Not happy at all. Um, all right, let's get to the weekend review. Plenty of big games, as I mentioned. Um, and by the way, I do apologize, listen, if I do cough occasionally during this episode. I feel like that picture of Thiago kicking Erling Haaland between the legs that we've all seen over the weekend. But let's go first to Spain. Real Madrid 3, Barcelona 1 at the Bernabeu. Um, since the departure of Ernesto Valverde, says Mr. Chip, Real Madrid have won six of the last seven Classicos. So maybe, uh, you know, Valverde didn't know how good they had it under him, etc. and so on, Taylor mm. Rockwell. Hmm. Or Graham, Graham, jump in. Uh, I think Valverde was dealt quite a, a harsh hand and the, and, the, and the difficulty that they have had since he left kind of underlines how good a coach he was. And in fact, Athletic Club are being pretty good this season. But, but anyway, enough about Ernesto Valverde. Um, this match kind of unfolded as we thought it would. It was entirely predictable. I did actually tip Barcelona to, to win this one, but only really because they were priced at 3-1 to one, and I thought that was very good value for a team that was unbeaten in La Liga until this match. But as I say, entirely predictable how this match unfolded and for Barcelona it was very much a con um a continuation continuation can't say that word continuation there we hey. go of the uh <laughs> the Champions League match against Inter last week where their defense got cooked in quick transition and obviously Real Madrid are, are one of the best quick transition teams around and Inter are pretty handy in that regard as well so it was always likely that was going to be an area where they could do some serious damage to Barcelona in the classical and that's exactly what happened so, Joe, can you break down for me what's going on with Barcelona's defence exactly? It does seem that it is slightly lacking. Yeah, I think it's down to the individuals, to be honest. I don't see any major structural issues with this defence, but you have moments like we saw in this game of Eric Garcia heading the ball back blindly, thinking that it's going to be one of his teammates that's in that space that he's trying to flick it back almost at a diagonal towards his own goal. And it ends up just being Real Madrid who goes and, and takes the ball and goes down the field, right? I mean, those moments... Are, are absolutely insurmountable when you're playing against a team that is as good as Real Madrid, the team that won the Champions League last year. Then you have Garcia sort of stomping on Rodrigo in the box. I, I think that was a soft penalty at best. But at the very least, when you put your foot down in that moment on Rodrigo or near him, you're opening yourself up to the risk of having a penalty called against you. And we just saw this in the Champions League with, with Eric Garcia sticking a leg out on Lautaro Martinez. In that moment, he doesn't bring Martinez down midweek. But Martinez sort of scoots around him and scores, right? Those moments kill you in games against teams that are as good as Real Madrid or teams that are as good as Inter Milan. And that's exactly what happened in this game. Was it Steve McManaman doing the broadcast for you all? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was okay. uh, Paco Jimenez. Okay. Well, over here, I, I believe it was him. And he was, yeah, was very, very annoyed by this decision. And I, I felt, I've got no beef with him, like, like necessarily, but I felt like this was one where he s sort of kept getting backed into a corner because first he said there was no contact at all, like that never should have been a penalty. And then you see the foot very clearly be stepped on, and then it becomes, well, the ball's not moving. He already left the ball. He was going into that challenge. Like, I think he was, he had sort of decided it wasn't meant to be a penalty. And when, even when he saw evidence that maybe should have made him waver a little bit, he refused. And and I think I ended up spending a lot of time breaking that one down myself because I get that if the ball's not moving, if the player seems to have gone past it, then maybe you could argue, well, he wasn't even going to be able to make a play, so maybe it shouldn't have been a penalty. But in my mind, as I understand the rules, if you step on the player's foot like that, even if it doesn't seem like it's that big of an impact, we've talked about this many times, when you're running at full speed or you're trying to cut 
and mm. the running motion gets disrupted, it's going to make you fall over. And and to me, a key thing is that if you deny a player the ability to k- keep making a play on the ball, that's when the foul occurs. Even if the ball has stopped behind the player, if he can't turn and try to get back to it because you have stepped on his foot and knocked him over, you've conceded a penalty. You've made a foul. And if it's in the box, it's going to be a penalty. So to me, yes, it's soft. I would agree with you, Joe, but I understand where it came through. But that felt like one of those moments when the commentators could have sort of explained things or slowed down and made it less emotional. Maybe a Classico is never going to let them do that. But uh, that was that was a moment that stood out to me. Uh, but so too did the dominance of Real Madrid in this game. Barca had their chances. Uh, Robert Lewandowski had several. But I, I thought Madrid were really, really compelling. I thought they played a risky game at times and then a conservative game at times. And they sort of found a way to marry those two pretty successfully in a way that I would say Manchester city did not. Obviously we'll talk about them later, but I thought this was a really strong performance from Real Madrid overall. Yeah. And, and, and Fede Valverde is a player who I just, every time I watch him, I I love him a little bit more. And I, I don't know if he is Real Madrid's most important player, but he's certainly one of them. And he just does so much for this team. So he gets forward on paper. He's part of the, the front three on the right side, but he also tucks into the midfield and then he also provides cover at, at, at right back. And his strike for the second Real, Real Madrid goal was just so satisfying. He struck it so cleanly and with so much power. And, and and that's the area of the game where Valverde has really raised it this season. He's got six goals for Real Madrid this season. And while I'm not really sure what you'd say his position is, he's he's genuinely, at this moment in time, he's for me, he's one of the best players in the world. He's everywhere. That's his position. He was, everywhere. He was right wing back in moments in this game. And I thought that was so interesting. I think that was part of what made Real Madrid so difficult to break down and figure out for Barcelona is that he basically was dropping in and playing as like another right back, which then would allow Ferland Mendy on the left side to pop out and cover whoever was on the far right channel. So that way you kept having four in the back, even if one person popped out to defend whoever was wide. But I think that limited Barcelona's uh, ability to play down those channels to get crosses in and to cut inside to find numerical superiority. And then the way he would like facilitate counterattacks and bomb forward and continue to do that late into the game. The engine on that man is absolutely insane. But the fact that he can do really good defensive work and stay defensively disciplined, but then improvise attacking play and get heavily involved in the attacking system uh, is a credit to him. I think he is one of their most or like lesser sung, but like uh, most should be most celebrated players. As long as we're talking about stuff that Real Madrid did well, Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that they were dominant in this game. I'm I'm not sure they were really close to dominant in this game, but I do think they had a lot of good things going for them. Fede Valverde is one of those things. That shot was so visually appealing, like it was so aesthetically pleasing. It was a great moment. Another thing that I thought Real Madrid did very well in this game and credit to Carlo Ancelotti for this or at least credit to the coaching staff is you could see some very clear man-oriented aspects of how they defended. So what I mean is, usually when you see teams defend, they're in some sort of a 4-4-2 block or or whatever shape. Maybe it's a 4-3-3 and they're pressing high up the field. There's this idea that I'm responsible for this zone of the field. My teammate next to me is responsible for the zone next to me. When a ball or a player, mostly the ball with a player, comes into my zone, that's when I sort of adjust and we move as a team. In this game, Real Madrid did some of that stuff, but they also stepped out and really paid attention to individual Barcelona players. I noticed this especially with Carvajal and Dembele in this game, although I think you could see it with Militao and Lewandowski. You could see it on the left side as well for Real Madrid, for Rafinha, and even when the wingers changed, you could see some of this stuff. What they would do, what Real Madrid would do, and let's focus on Carvajal for a second, when any chance, when there was any chance of Dembele sort of dropping to receive the ball, Carvajal would go right with him. He would step with him, because if you're Real Madrid, what don't you want to happen? What, what don't 
every single team who plays Barcelona want to happen. They don't want the wingers to receive the ball with time and space to run at them, get to the byline, and cut the ball back. That's what Xavi's Barcelona team does. That's what Pep's Manchester City team does. Teams want to prevent that from happening. And so Real Madrid's solution was, instead of getting Danny Carvajal matched up with Usman Dembele, with Dembele having time and space to absolutely cut him up, which would happen, right? We've seen that happen against Carvajal before. Instead of that, they pushed Carvajal forward and denied Dembele the chance to even get touches on the ball. And there are ways to beat that, right? You send runners in behind the scattered defense. You play in beyond the back line. Barcelona did a little bit of that, but they couldn't really crack the code that Real Madrid threw at them. And so while Barcelona did create, I think, noticeably more chances in this game, I believe it was 18 shots to eight. Like Barcelona had plenty going for them in the attack and very clearly could have won this game if their defense didn't let them down again. Like I, I do think they were the better team for large stretches of this match. But man, credit to Real Madrid for that defensive approach. I would be surprised if we don't mm. see other teams try to run a similar man-oriented, don't let Dembele and Rafinha really break this game open kind of defensive approach. Yeah, I just think Real Madrid have a much greater sense of in-match intelligence than Barcelona. I don't think there's a, a great deal of intelligence in this Barcelona team. And the first Real Madrid goal shows this. So it starts with Busquets not fouling his man and allowing the pass out to Vinicius. Then when Vinicius has the shot, Benzema has dropped back anticipating the rebound. And there are four Barcelona players inside the box, but none of them have had that same anticipation if one of them just drops off, they probably make a block or they at least make Benzema's life more difficult in, in getting that shot into the back of the net. And something similar happened for the Valverde goal where nobody notices that he's at the edge of the box where Barcelona have the men back. They have six players inside the box, Barcelona. So they could have dropped someone out to him and still had everything covered, but there's absolutely no awareness of, of the situation. And even in an attacking sense, so much of Barcelona's decision-making in this game was was bad. And, and Javi has placed such an, an emphasis on Usman Dembele being the outlet for Barcelona. And there have been times this season where he has been electric. But in big games against Inter, in both home and away in the Champions League, and here again, his decision-making has been atrocious. And compare the way Dembele played this match to the way Vinicius played it. Both wingers who want to get in behind and provide a vertical threat. And I think there are some similarities in the way that they play the game. But look at the way Vinicius for the... Is it for the second? Yeah, it's the Valverde goal, the second Real Madrid goal, where he is up on his own against uh, four, I think, Barcelona defenders. And he slows down the game just for a, a second or two. And he plays that little back heel to, to Chouamene, and by which time Ferland Mendes made the run up the left side. Dembele, in similar situations, doesn't do that. He makes hasty decisions. And I thought it was easy for Real Madrid to defend against him. And and yeah. that was one of the big differences between the two teams, as I just think Real Madrid, maybe it comes down to experience. Obviously, they're the European champions, they're the, the Spanish champions, but they're just a smarter team in terms of their decision-making. Two things for me uh, that, that kind of bring it all together, I think. When we're talking about the way Real Madrid defended Joe, I think you're dead on with the way uh, Carvajal would step it and handle Dembele. And that's where I think Fede Valverde dropping deeper and being like a, a, a backup fullback when Carvajal would go, uh, made a lot of sense to me because what it seemed like Madrid were then trying to do when they would win the ball back to counter is that they would have numbers back defensively to win the ball, but also to invite Barcelona further and further up the pitch. But with Mendy able to pop out as he needed to, it sort of invites that far-sided right back for, uh, for Barcelona to get forward. 
And the two players for Real Madrid who didn't really do much defensively were Karim Benzema, who stays high, and Vinicius, who would stay high and a little bit wider. And so Madrid, it felt to me, would win the ball back. They would funnel it through the middle. They would usually try to get it to Luka Modric or Toni Kroos. And then they would spring that ball with an overcommitted Barcelona. And that's where, when we talk about Barcelona's defense, I think... You can just see the panic when they aren't quite sure what they're supposed to do or when they don't have everything set up. And that's the case for the first goal where they're scrambling. And as Graham said, Busquets can't even pull Tony Cruz down to get the yellow card for the foul. Uh, But the second goal especially is Eric Garcia trying to make a play and he flicks it over Koundé to Valverde, and at that point, they still are in fine position. They, they can get back, they can slow it down. Vinicius is trying to slow it down, and I think they could have taken that opportunity to get their shape right, to keep applying that pressure. You have some more people come in and, and make a play on Vinicius, and you win the ball back pretty easily. There's no way... If you, if you show me that moment when Eric Garcia flicks that ball on and pause it there, I would have thought, oh yeah, Vinicius is going to try something. Like Maybe he'll get a shot away from distance, but more likely Barcelona will swarm him, win the ball back, and then they'll counterattack the counterattack. And that it ends up leading to a goal is astounding to me. But, but I think it also shows just the kind of the panic and how much the panic can lead to more panic and how much of a chain reaction that can be if you don't have the stability that Barcelona defenses have had previously, but certainly did not have this past weekend. I think, yeah, that's a good point, Taylor. And, and I sort of see Madrid, and particularly the midfield, as like a, a jet cruising along, cutting through the sky perfectly, whereas Barcelona have got some severe turbulence going on, if that makes sense as an analogy. <laughs> uh, and Tony Kroos, Luka Modric, and Chiumeni were great in this game, but particularly Tony Kroos, I don't know if we could pour a bit more love his way, um, given my theorem that when Tony Kroos has a good game, Real Madrid have a good game, and it's been upheld here, Taylor. It has. It has. When Tony Cruz plays well, I think Real Madrid play well. When Tony Cruz and Luka Modric play well, they win. Mm. And that was very much the case today. I think, yeah, Cruz deserves some love for me. Luka Modric is the other one who I, I, I think it stood out to me because I watched this game after I watched Manchester United. There's your Manchester United reference for you listeners. And, and how much that team needs somebody to just make decisive action and create some instability in the defense versus pass the ball and move and pass the ball and move and pass the ball and move and teams can shift over. Whereas Luka Modric will just from like a right back position when he wins the ball, slalom forward and get past two people and then hit a 30 yard ball forward that goes into someone's feet. And now you've bypassed six or seven players. And I think he creates so much variety in the way they want to attack. And he's so difficult to, to break down and to handle on an on an individual basis, he almost always ends up either getting rid of the ball or getting fouled. It's rare that we see him get dispossessed. And when he's on his game, when Tony Cruz is on his game, Real Madrid tend to be on their game. And I would throw Chiumeni in there because I thought he was pretty strong from start to finish as well. Um, Joe, to finish off on this one, any other positives for Barcelona? And it's been a tricky few weeks. I mean, they've gone off the top of the table here. Champions League's not looking good for them. But on a positive side, uh, Ansu Fati was quite good. Nobody died. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is that is positive. Not at least not, not not that we know of. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all about that. I really enjoyed Ryan in this game. I, I thought Barcelona had a lot of good moments. Like, I think there's a clear contrast between their attacking ability and their defensive problems. So, I, I still love watching this Barcelona team because I think there's a lot of really quality soccer that they play on a regular basis. You can see that on the goal in the 83rd minute. It's it's Ferran Torres who gets that goal, and it's like. It is the one moment that a winger gets to run at. It's not the one moment, but it is one of the few moments where a winger for Barcelona gets to run at an opposing player. It's Ansu Fati absolutely destroying Valverde to get into the box. He puts the ball on the floor. Lewandowski flicks it back uh, to Torres at the back post, and Torres scores, and all of a sudden it's, it's 2-1. 
That was a phenomenal moment in this game that shows how much juice Barcelona do have. They very much could have gotten a result in this game. It just seems like they don't quite have the entire puzzle put together. I think it might be a year too early for them at this point to realistically compete for trophies, although I wouldn't count them out of La Liga just yet. But this result is damaging for them in that hunt. Why is Jordi Alba not playing in this Barcelona yeah. team when you consider that Alex Baldi, who I, th- I think is is a reasonable prospect, but he's he's young and you can see that in his game. There were times when, so Real Madrid were doing a good job of, of pinning Barcelona back, but there, there were also times where he should really be pushing higher up the pitch. And so Barcelona didn't have that outball. And that's something that Jordi Alba does very well. I think once Ansu Fati comes off in the second half, you can see... You can see the basis of an effective Barcelona attack where I would have Dembele on the right side. I would have Ansu Fati on the left and obviously Lewandowski in the middle. But if you have Ansu Fati on the left side of that attack, you probably need an overlapping fullback, which is Jordi Alba. So I can't really understand why when Barcelona have the options that they have right now, Jordi Alba is just... I mean, is he even, was he even on the bench for this game? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, he yeah, actually he comes on. Um, which I missed. <laughs> um, but he really should probably be starting a few more games for Barcelona. I think if you get him at left-back, Barcelona probably have a bit, a bit of a better balance in defence, although maybe not much, because that defence would still include my favourite, Eric Garcia. Oh, your favourite Manchester City Academy graduate, Graham. Wonderful to hear. Uh, Barcelona were top at the start of the day. They're now three points behind Real Madrid in the Liga. We need to take a break and jump to the Premier League and Liverpool Man City. But before we get there, just a couple of other results from the Liga to talk about. Real Betis are in fourth after a 3-1 win over Almeria. And it was the derby of only one of us is going to let General Franco tell us how to spell our name. And it was Atletico Bilbao nil. Atletico Madrid. Athletic Bilbao nil. Goodness me. I fell oh, in the dear. General Franco trap. Uh, Atletic, Atletico Madrid won. I messed that one up, Graham, but Atleti got the, the win there. Yeah, this felt a bit like classic Atletico Madrid again, where they defended well and, and took their chance when it came. Athletic Club have been doing well this season under the aforementioned Ernesto Valverde. Uh, the Williams brothers have been in good form. They were unbeaten in four coming into this match. So this was a real test for Atletis, especially after the, the frustrating game against uh, Club uh, Brugge last week and Griezmann scored the, the only goal of the game with a very nice controlled finish he scored 13 goals against Athletic Club in his career which is more than any other team and he just loves playing against them and then Ronaldo at, at the back was excellent for Atletico Madrid so this was to summarise this was a lot better even if they had to grind it out at points in the second half wonderful stuff quick break when we come back we go to Anfield back shortly This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Let's talk about Liverpool 1, Manchester City 0. A very, very entertaining game of the Premier League soccer, particularly the second half in this one. Man City's 21-game Premier League unbeaten streak is over, courtesy of Mo Salah on the break. 
Uh, Graham, I thought this was a very, very fun game. We had a little chat before we came on air. Mm. I thought the, the first and second halves were wonderful. The first half, maybe I'm biased because I just like watching Kevin De Bruyne spray passes around and it brings mm. me immense joy to see. But the second half when, you know, things got a bit aggressive. And this is a, this is a derby, or not a derby, this is a, a rivalry game which doesn't have enough spice to it generally. And I think we're getting a bit more of that with each of these passing games with these two at the top of the table. Yeah, absolutely. It feels a bit like that. And we did have a discussion before we started recording. I think myself and I, uh, sorry, um, Ryan, um, you and I enjoyed this match maybe a little bit more than Joe did. It feels like maybe there was a, a difference of opinion there. But I, I thought the second half in particular, I thought was was nuts. And and the scoreline doesn't do justice to how chaotic this game was. It, uh, it was end to end. The crowd was up for it. Pep lost his his cool, as he tends to do at Anfield, Klopp gets sent off. There was a rugby tackle on Mohamed Salah. There was a disallowed goal. And as you mentioned, City lost their unbeaten start to the season. And it felt, in terms of the intensity anyway, it felt a lot more like the Liverpool of old. There was some new tactical stuff there, so it wasn't entirely the Liverpool of old. But in terms of bringing the goods when it mattered most and Anfield being one of the most atmospheric stadiums in the Premier League. It, it felt sort of familiar. And as I say, Pep tends to lose his cool and City don't have the best of records at Anfield. Mm. So um, yeah, it felt like a continuation in the, in the next episode of this rivalry, even if Liverpool are probably already out of the title race this season. Joe, uh, I'll give you a chance to defend the accusation you didn't find this game super interesting, but also I want to ask you about Liverpool's defending you know, they've switched to this slightly different system, which Jurgen Klopp has labelled brave. So what did they do here to contain Manchester City? They sat. That's what they did. I mean, Erling Haaland beats you in open space. And that, that for me is the biggest storyline around this game is Erling Haaland doesn't score in a big game between two of the most talented teams in, in the world right now. That is a huge storyline, right? After what he's done this year, he plays the full game. Pep Guardiola only makes one sub in this entire match. It's to bring on Alvarez in the 89th minute. Pep believed that his initial recipe would work. It very much did not do that thing. Liverpool, Ryan, just sat, right? That's that's a little reductive of what they did in this game. But they defended in a 4-4-2. They were willing to cede space and possession and all of those things to Manchester City in return for two things. In return for, number one, compressing all of the really valuable space in, in and around their box. And I thought they did that pretty well in this game. City did very little in the attack. They took 16 shots. Um, five or six of those, I'm trying to tell, were from outside the box. A lot of them were for pretty poor areas as well. All told, City had less than one expected goal in this game for all their possession. So that's one thing that, that Liverpool uh, wanted to focus on is constricting that space around their box. The other thing they wanted is to expose the space in behind Manchester City. And when you watch the goal that Mo Salah scores in this game after after a really long kick, like just an incredible, this is my favorite part of this match, is is Allison just absolutely booting the ball into outer space. And he fell over Salah doing to it. Get. it. It was beautiful to watch. And, and Jao Cancelo kind of made a meal of that. But either way, that's what Liverpool wanted to do in this game. They wanted to make it really hard for Erling Haaland to have any space to run into. I think they did that pretty successfully. Although even still, he had a couple of chances in this game because he is Erling Haaland. The other bit is they wanted to attack in behind. Mo Salah playing as a number nine, I think is almost always a signal of Liverpool's intent to do that thing, to, to make their moves in behind, to seed possession. And the recipe worked for them in this game. I thought, I thought the first half was dull a little bit because there was lots of great play within the boxes. But I mean, neither team was creating much of anything in the first half. And City certainly, does, any, does anybody have an answer for why... City set up in this way, so I'll run through it quickly. It's Ederson and goal. It's Jao Cancelo, Akanji, Diaz, and, and Nathan Ake in the back line. 
Then you have Kevin De Bruyne, Rodri, Gundogan in midfield, Bernardo Silva, Phil Foden, and Erling Haaland. That's that's how FOTMOB lists this lineup. That's not at all how City were actually lined up. For the most part, at yeah. least in my eye, it was a back three of Ake, Diaz, and Akanji. It was Cancelo at right wing back. It was Foden at left wing back. It was uh, Rodri and Bernardo Silva as the double pivot in a 3-4-3 with Gundogan and De Bruyne in the half spaces and Holland up top. D- there was no like 1v1 ability. There was no one who was really trying to drive at someone to break them down other than Phil Foden, who I don't think was all that involved in this game. It felt so stagnant. And slow for City, which was strange to me as well when they yeah. have several players on the bench who could come in and, and change that dynamic. And Pep just didn't go to them in the starting lineup, and he didn't go to them later in the second half either. Yeah, they, they seem to, to my eye anyway, and I'm with you, Joe, there were times in this match where I really struggled out what the, what the formation was. And I watched this game in its entirety again this morning to try and with the sole purpose of trying to work out what City were, were doing. I don't really have many answers. They seem to vacate the center of the pitch, which is where... I would have thought you could overwhelm Liverpool given their troubles in that area this season. And it seemed like Cazelle was in a, mid, um, a midfield four, De Bruyne was on the, on the right wing, and then there, I can't even begin to work out what their plan was on the left side, where, where <laughs> City had James Milner to attack. So obviously Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold doesn't start this game, but nonetheless, Milner starts as the right back for Liverpool, who that is not his natural position. So that should have been a weak point to target, but... That that rare, rarely happened, and in the second half, it felt like City were just going very quickly to Haaland, which contributed to this sense of chaos because Liverpool were doing similar to Salah, although they enjoyed much more success doing that. There was one time when De Bruyne was able to get a ball into Haaland, and he won that header in the first half, and he forced Alisson into a save. But apart from that, it was a pretty incoherent and weak Manchester City performance, and I never really worked out what they were trying to do. It was basically, in my mind, Egypt versus Norway, because this is how Egypt play with Mohamed Salah as the sort of outlet, hoof it long, be defensive, two banks of four, uh, and then we'll use his speed and technical ability. I don't know if that's what Norway do. They've got Martin Odegaard in there to be the playmaker, so I guess maybe he's Kevin De Bruyne in this analogy. But it did; it felt very direct at times to me. Yeah. The only thing I can think is that maybe the idea was back three lines up against Liverpool's front three, but then... It allows you to spread the field and try to nullify that press. And it also yeah. probably pulls that midfield three for Liverpool out of shape because if you spread everybody wide for City, that midfield three is just sitting there doing nothing. So either they continue to sit there doing nothing and you can bypass them easily down the channel or you pull them out and then you have the technical ability to play through or you have players drop in to that vacated space. But I think that works if you are going to be ball dominant. And I don't know if you can ever truly expect to be that against Liverpool, who aren't going to necessarily want to dominate possession and have 700 passes completed. But I don't think you can ever sort of expect to to build out slowly and at the speed that you want to build. And why that seemed to be an issue in my mind is because when they turned the ball over Man City, that was where that formation really became an issue because if you're used to playing in a back four, if you're used to knowing where everybody's supposed to be, I saw this a couple times, Kevin De Bruyne, for example, walking back or getting very slow to get back because in the past he has defensive cover. He has a fullback back there to handle one of the channels and he has other midfielders there to handle some of that transition. But when you have City in the shape they were and you have wingbacks committed to the attack because Phil Foden is not a wingback, like (laughs) then there's acres of space and that's where you get sort of blown up because now you have to get back you have to have everybody sort of sprint back or try to get back or try to put out fires and that means that when you do that you're not getting people in the ideal position to then build out or counter from there and I think it just led to a very disjointed performance from Manchester City 
Not to say that Liverpool didn't have their own issues, but I think they were able to execute their game plan far more effectively, including that that long ball from Allison to Mohamed Salah. Great control from him. I can't believe there wasn't a handball in there. I assumed there would be because that was the only way I could fathom a person so perfectly controlling that ball. Yeah. But I guess I'm well, not Mohamed hang on. Salah. Graham and I had a bit of a, a disagree, disagreeance, a disagreeance, is that a word? On Twitter. Disagreement? Disagreement. There you are. Thank you, Graham, <laughs> uh, for, for getting on the right side there. Um, COVID brain. <laughs> indeed. I'm, I'm in a fugue right now. I apologize. But uh, I, I said a comment to the to the effect of when Wimbledon used to d- go route one and hoof the ball down the field, um, it used to be derided. But when Liverpool do it, everyone thinks it's brilliant. And... To build my case, Graham, it was a goalkeeper who booted the ball so hard he fell over. Um, it landed at the defender's feet and the defender missed it. And it wasn't like incredible Zidane uh, oh, skill to bring good. it down. It kind of just, the ball was should have been taken Blast by the defender me. and it hit Salah's yeah, knee Blast and he went through. For me. And yeah, so 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 my so my point to Ryan was that there weren't any Wimbledon players yeah. controlling a ball like Salah did, <laughs> yeah. and so I yeah, somebody think, else in the face was, so they couldn't make the play. That's, that that's wasn't the masterful control to me. That was oh, no, he it took was. an opportunity. It was. Okay. No, it was. So, so Yao Cancelo yeah. does make a mistake. So he he dives in and he gives Salah the opportunity to control it. But Salah also has. He does three different things all at once, Salah. So he's watching the flight of the ball. He's anticipating a bounce as well. So he's thinking, right, I'm going to have to control this on the bounce. But he also kind of just shrugs Cancelo out the way as as well. And he's so strong, Mohamed Salah. And when he takes his shirt off, you kind of see how strong he is. But he's he's so strong with his centre of gravity. And so he just nudges Cancelo out the way. He's also turning at the same time. So that's the three elements of it. Watching the flight of the ball, he's uh, shrugging Cancelo off it. He's anticipating the bounce. And then he's also realising that he needs to turn quickly because he's still 30 yards out from goal. Mm. So he needs to get a head start on the rest of the Man City defence. So to do that all in one movement, not handle the ball, as Taylor says, I just thought was fantastic. I, I thought it was amazing. And I think, and I think, splitting the difference because Ryan, I hear where you're coming from. Not so much the Wimbledon thing because that's ludicrous, but the <laughs> idea that maybe it wasn't like perfect control. I think so much about about the sport that we love is the ability to play technically precise uh, play when you can, but also the ability to adapt to to the situation in the moment. And the players who can do that a half second faster or a full second faster are the ones who are just that next level. And you can see it in the final replay. You can see him as he turns, realize that he has not killed the ball, but slowed it down so that it's popped up a little bit. And he is able to, in a fraction of a second, know how he needs to take that next touch to control it forward, but that he is now away in behind the defense where the goalkeeper is. He reads everything. It's like a Terminator scanning the field of play. Maybe he sees an infrared, and that would make that that analogy fully accurate. But just the way he's able to, to adapt to the situation, I think, is what makes that uh, next level. I think when we think of Route 1, it's oftentimes like goalkeeper either punts it long, goalkeeper rolls it to a defender who hoofs it long, there's a big person there who knocks it down to another person, and then away we go. That it's Salah doing all of those things himself, uh, a credit to him. I'd say a credit to Allison as well. I think the reason he slips, maybe it's late and he's tired or footing, but I think also the velocity on that ball. He knows he has to get it out quickly and he needs to get it to Salah as rapidly as he can. And I think the way he does that, so he has control but still has the speed on it, means that like the force of the kick 
knocks him over, pulls the feet out from underneath him. Uh, so I think that is revealing in and of itself how mm. much that was part of the plan. Get the ball to Salah quickly, hope that somebody over-pursues, and Jao Cancelo did that, just that, and away they go, and away they score, and then Klopp somehow still gets a red card for being angry. Also, also, sorry, to, to touch on the Wimbledon thing, Ryan, the reason why, and I'm much more on your side with this whole Salah thing, I do think there's a lot of intent behind it, and so I, I think it's incredibly impressive, but I do see where you're coming from. The difference between Wimbledon and this Liverpool team is that back when Wimbledon were, were very good, or, or at least were in the Premier League, teams didn't press like they do now. Teams certainly didn't press like Man City did in this game. And so in this case, Liverpool is kicking the ball downfield to their superstar for a 1v1, and, and they do capitalize on a mistake, yes. In Wimbledon's case, now granted, I haven't watched a lot of Wimbledon from the 1990s, so forgive me, but my impression is that they're kicking the ball downfield into 10 defenders instead of one defender. At that point, you are sort of crossing your fingers, banging around for a little bit, and then maybe breaking through. In this case, Liverpool are still crossing their fingers, but they're they're not as aggressively crossed as Wimbledon would have been back in the 90s. <laughs> I don't know crossing. why back when Wimbledon were good, dot, 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 or at least in the Premier League, made me laugh so hard. <laughs> but it feels like such good shade from Joe. Well, well done, Joe. Yeah, it, it wasn't fully intended shade. It, it was a nice bonus along the way. Care. I just realized, like, <laughs> I have no clue where Wimbledon has ever finished, like, in any season, other than I know they got relegated last year. I'm so sorry, Ryan, for saying that, but it, that I know that did happen. Did, did John Hartson ever perform that turn? That's that's so, basically yeah, my argument. Joe's right. The, the difference is uh, the ball from Wimbledon would have been in the air to John Hartson's head, and he would have been elbowing two defenders in the face yeah, right. while he received the ball. Right. That's yeah. the and difference. there'd be snow on it as it comes down. <laughs> also, I'm sorry, Taylor, you mentioned Jurgen Klopp's red card, and I, I sort of got us back to the to the Salah thing. I, I respect so much Klopp's disregard, his complete and utter disregard oh, yeah. for the coach's box. I don't even know why they paint those things anymore because no one cares about them. No coach actually abides by those dotted lines. And Jurgen Klopp's just utter distaste for seeing white paint anywhere near him on the ground, I thought was hilarious. <laughs> this red card was coming, and it was warranted, certainly. But, man, I love that moment so much. You, that did rescue a lot of this game for me because I did not think the first half was all that good. But, man, the second half did heat up, and that was a big reason why. He he had he went he went full toddler for a moment there oh, yeah. because oh, yeah. he left the box, and then you can see him be like, oh, no, I broke the rules. And then he, he does try to run back in time. You can see his assistant's. Uh, yelling at him to get back. But then along the way, he pauses to, I'm going to assume, hurl obscenities at the AR. And I think that's when that red card happens. Not just for leaving the box, but you're right, Joe. Uh, there, there's not a lot of respect for those tiny little little zones. I think maybe they need to be made bigger or just uh, abolished outright and just let managers fist fight at midfield. Made, electric made fence. Made of glass, just oh, glass yes. boxes. Yes. Yeah, good, not electric talking. fence. Do just, Graham's thing instead. Yes. Yeah, buying against the glass. Doom, doom. Yeah, I love yeah. hockey style where you can see each other but you can't oh, get at each other. Yeah. There we go. Oh, yes. that's good. Yes. Joe, back when Wimbledon, back when Wimbledon were in the Premier League in the nineties, Joe, there was no technical areas. The manager could run to the corner flag to shout if he wanted to. It was a I mean, Jesse time. Marsh does that anyway. Now, again, <laughs> complete disregard. So we're good. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's go through the rest of the Premier League. Let's look at MLS playoffs. Let's look at much, much, much more. Back shortly. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, 
it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode.
Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go through the rest of the Premier League from the weekend. Manchester United, nil. Newcastle, nil. A weird moment, Taylor, in this game where Ronaldo stole the ball off Nick Pope and he got a yellow card. Uh, it was an odd moment because he technically did play to the whistle. Yeah. Uh, and probably the goal should have counted. What did we make of this one? Uh, I mean, I, I, I feel for Ronaldo, not a thing I expected to ever say. Uh, but I, I think credit, uh, I'm just going to say credit to Newcastle for this one, because I think they're a team that, that does fly under the radar. I think they're a very good team. Obviously, they, they've got the financial backing, but I think Eddie Howe is doing a very good job of uh, building a, a solid unit of a team. Uh, I, I think maybe the case is true for Eric Ten Hag. I guess the season w- will play out and we'll see how it goes. But a frustrating game for Manchester United fans that I think... Newcastle fans are probably happy with that point at Old Trafford. Definitely so. Leeds nil. <clears throat> Excuse me. Arsenal won. Uh, Mr. Sucker keeping Arsenal top of the league, Graham. The match delayed 40 minutes due to a power yeah. outage. Isn't that fun? That feels very 90s. Yeah, and it's just as well that they found a penny for the meter because VR was busy in this match. <laughs> um, a lot of incidents right until the end. This felt like a bit of a survival match for Arsenal. In the past, I think they probably would have dropped points or maybe even lost this game because Leeds had chances. They did that Leeds thing of pressing very high, a lot of intensity, forcing Arsenal into difficult decisions. Um, Bamford misses a penalty. Gabriel might have been sent off late on. But you're going to have matches like this if you're challenging for the title. And Arsenal indeed survived. Saka's finish for the goal was a a good one, although Rodrigo helps out with the pre-assist sending this bizarre (laughs) uh, crossfield pass that Saka and Odegaard intercepted. So that wasn't ideal for Leeds. Um, Leeds, it's getting to the point where they need some results. So Marsh says performances performances have, have been better than results. And that is probably true. But this is a team that scored just once in their last three games. And it feels like they fall apart a little bit in the final third. And their next two games are against Leicester City and Fulham. And I think those are two really big games for Leeds. They, they probably need a win from at least one of those Two matches, so a, a, a defining point in the season coming for uh, Jesse Marsh. Yeah, Jesse Marsh tweeting just before we went on air as we record on Monday that he had full faith behind his men, as he called them. Uh, I'm sure that would be just enough to tip them over the edge and get some more goals, Graham, I'm quite sure. Uh, Aston Villa nil, <laughs> Chelsea 2. Mason Mount on the double here. He's back in form quite nicely for a certain tournament that's coming up. I do like to see that. Graham Potter, Graham, uh, six games unbeaten with Chelsea. Yeah, things are going pretty well for Chelsea. Chelsea, they weren't at their best in this game. And this was a bit of a a strange match because there was a great deal of pressure on Steven Gerrard ahead of this game. And in some ways, he got a response from his team with their performance. Um, One of the biggest criticisms of Villa recently has been that they've been boring and they haven't created many opportunities. But in this match, they played a front three and they did create good opportunities. And it was due to Kepa producing what I thought was his best ever performance in a Chelsea shirt. That was the reason that Villa failed to score. So some, despite the defeat, some reasons for optimism for Steven Gerrard. But as you say, Mason Mount was the difference. He's in excellent form at the moment. He's got three assists and two goals in his last three games. And uh, Potter will be pleased with that momentum that they're building. Has anyone here seen uh, the miniseries Band of Brothers on HBO from a good long while ago? Uh, I have not. Sergeant Winters is my spirit animal. Go on. There we go. Uh, Yeah, so it's basically about uh, Easy Company in World War II. uh, And they start out, this is not a spoiler, but they start out with a very, very not likable uh, leader. 
uh, played by David Schwimmer, who like drills them and drills them and drills them and makes them this incredibly physically fit unit, but also does not have the respect of the unit at all. The men don't like him. They don't really trust him. They don't feel like his tactics are going to work in battle. Do you see where I'm going with this? That basically <laughs> uh, they then get rid of him. They bring in uh, uh, Cat. He becomes Lieutenant Winners, I think, after D-Day. But he is this very charismatic, like like uh, leader of men. Like he's also like one of them, and he commands respect. And he becomes mm. this very capable leader who gets them to do great things. But at the same time, Captain Sobel, the David Schwimmer character, kind of feels chagrined that he was the one who made them what they are. And then this person comes in and gets the glory. And I do feel like that's a good analogy for Thomas Tuchel and Graham mm. Potter because it feels like this is, as we've talked about, a familiar Chelsea team who just seemed rejuvenated and happy under Graham Potter. And so now they're they're hey, back to winning and winning emphatically ta- at that. Taylor, to be fair, Thomas Tuchel won a Champions League, whereas David Schwimmer's character in that in that um in that show like got lost in a field with some sheep in it. I like, mean, I mean, we've never seen Thomas Tuchel navigate England. That is a training <laughs> exercise in England when he gets lost. Maybe Thomas Tuchel had problems with that too. Did, did the new captain in this show have a glow up as well, like Graham Potter <laughs> oh, has yeah. a new haircut? Kind of, kind of. He, you know, I mean, he gets like uh, promoted, so he gets mm. uh, better and better rank with better and better uniforms to go with it. He, he had a big glow. Yeah. He became the CEO of Axe Capital um, later on. Nice deep cut. <laughs> is that a Billions yeah. reference? Yeah, same guy, oh right? God. I Same character, you, Sergeant Winters. Anyway, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, you went so- billions over Homeland, and I respect you for it. <laughs> I skipped it. I skipped it. <laughs> Southampton won, West Ham won. Declan Rice's first Premier League goal in nearly a year. Uh, Southampton are still in the uh, relegation zone. Uh, Tottenham 2, Everton nil. Kane and Hoiberg with the goals there on Harry Kane's 400th Premier League appearance. Uh, Wolves won, Nottingham Forest nil. A big, big win for interim manager Steve Davis, uh, who is a lifelong Wolves fan. We love to see that. Uh, Fulham 2, Bournemouth 2. Bournemouth still undefeated, still unbeaten, excuse me, under interim manager Gary O'Neill. So much interim fun in the Premier League this weekend. Here's a statistic about uh, Bournemouth. So the only unbeaten Premier League team since they lost 9-0 to Liverpool is Bournemouth. That's a great statistic. I like that. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Just thought it was quite interesting. That's very interesting. I like that. Wow. Um, let's jump from Premier League to Major League Soccer. Listener, we're going to go in depth on uh, the playoffs uh, in Tuesday's show on the feed. So look out for that one. But in the meantime, Joey Lowry, a little look of what happened over the weekend in the playoffs, if you will. All right, roundup time, ladies and gentlemen. The first game on Saturday, FC Cincinnati beat the New York Red Bulls 2-1. Cincinnati, again, never made the playoffs before, had never done anything but finish absolutely last in Major League Soccer in three seasons. Now in year four, they are through to play the best team in the Eastern Conference in the conference semifinals on Thursday. They were good enough in this game, right? I mean, they absolutely were good enough. They have more attacking depth than the New York Red Bulls, and I wrote about this for Backyield. The idea of Sergio Santos super subbing and and absolutely blitzing his way past Dylan Nealis and then Brandon Vasquez toasting Aaron Long in the open field. That's what won this game for Cincinnati. They outlasted their opponents. They have more attacking firepower. That was enough to get them the win. So that was the first game on Saturday. The second game, the LA Galaxy beat Nashville SC 1-0. Yuli Naranjo got the goal on a header. The Galaxy were effective in this game. I don't think they were great, but they were certainly good enough, and they kept Hani Mukhtar at bay. We can talk more about that tomorrow. Sunday, Austin FC beat RSL 2-2. They beat him in penalties. That's where the whole 2-2 thing comes in. RSL didn't really show up in the penalty shootout, and Brad Stuver made oh. a really important save to get them over the line in this match. A really exciting, entertaining shootout, and kind of a, a wild game. RSL go down to 10 men. 
Austin are down 2-0 inside of 15 minutes, and at that point, I thought this one was done. I honestly thought RSL, with the quality they have to just sit back and defend, in Austin, I, I didn't know that they would have enough to get over the line, but uh, two goals from Sebastian Drusi, including a 94th-minute penalty kick, got them back in this game for extra time, and as I said, they get the job done in penalties. And then Sunday night to close this thing out, CF Montreal beat Orlando City 2-0. It was 1-0 until the 99th minute when Georgi Mihaljevic hit a penalty to make it 2-0 to really ice this game. But man, Montreal, I thought, struggled a little bit early on. They weren't creating all that much despite dominating the ball. And then it is like just a beautiful piece of possession play. It's what Manchester City needed. I'm not, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. It's that kind of play at a very different level, but the, that kind of play of breaking through a compact defense. It's, it's Joe Waterman who steps forward. Then I believe he plays that into Kai Kamara, who bounces it back to Georgi Mihaljevic, who finds Ismail Kone in the box, and, and he scores to make it 1-0 in the 68th minute. Kone is going to be... I'd be surprised if he's not at the World Cup with Canada, and I'd be even more surprised if he doesn't move to England for a sizable chunk of change sooner rather yep. than later. He's a name for all four of us. Seriously, keep your eyes on him because he's going to be popping up in these Premier League roundups, I would wager, before too long. Joe, as a newly minted Montreal fan, uh, I watched so that good. game. They're I'm not so going to say I was fully captivated by that game. <laughs> for large stretches, I definitely found myself uh, scrolling Reddit. But Kone is a player that will uh, attract attention uh, should attract attention from England, but does sort of keep your attention if you're watching him, uh, both for his attacking play, but also his defensive work, too. I really, really like seeing when he, like, gets in there out of nowhere and makes a play and then also gets in there out of nowhere to score a goal. Uh, r- really strong performance from him. Uh, I liked what I saw from Montreal. Yeah, he's what? fun. Two more two more playoff games tonight, but that is my roundup, Ryan, of the first four. Thank you very much. And we'll give uh, MLS uh, playoffs the credence they deserve, as I say, on the feed on Tuesday. So look out for that one. I'll just say, by the way, I, I love that you are a Montreal fan now, Taylor. I flew in Whoa, via Montreal. Taylor just said he was a Montreal fan and then said he didn't even watch the game. No, I didn't. <laughs> I watched. It was on. I'm, con- I'm confused. You just didn't enjoy it. I'm confused. Yeah. <laughs> you li- I Never mind. Ryan, do your thing. You got it. I, Keep I was going to say. Montreal I, Airport. I flew in via Montreal last week and it looked absolutely beautiful. I want to visit it like properly one day because like, the trees are turned, fall was coming. It, like, it looked like a very, very stunning city. So I look forward, Montreal, to coming and seeing you properly soon, sooner rather than later. Um, just wanted to say that the trees look pretty. That's all. Syria, let's go to Syria. Napoli <laughs> remained top. Uh, they had a comeback 3-2 win over Bologna. Victor Osman with the 69th minute winner, Graham. Yeah, 10 wins in a row now for Napoli in all competitions who just cannot be stopped at the moment. But... It did look like Bologna might stop them for a large part of this match. They took the lead and then uh, Alex Merritt, the goalkeeper, he had a howler that that gave Bologna a second goal to make it 2-2. But um, Napoli were just as dangerous in attack as they have been in pretty much every match this season. Three goals in three games for Chucky Lozano now because, of course, Napoli were lacking in uh, in terms of in-form attackers this season. He seems to be finding form. And two goals in two games off the bench for uh, Victor Osimhen since his return from injury. He's He's just such a handful, and I know Raspadori and Giovanni Simeone have done well in his absence, particularly Raspadori, but when you see Osman coming off the bench and playing like this, you kind of realise just how much he gives Napoli, and he was the one who helped them get over the line in this game. Absolutely. Atalanta were top on Saturday. They're now second after a comeback 2-1 win over Sassuolo. Milan are in third place. They got a 2-1 win, Graham, at Verona. 
Yeah, and they were maybe a little bit fortunate to get that win because this was a poor performance by AC Milan. They were a long way from being at their best. Verona found it far too easy to get to the edge of the box and they could have scored another with a, a header that hit the bar with the score at 1-0. And obviously if that goes in, then that changes the game and makes things much more difficult for AC Milan given that Verona could just sit back and defend. But it doesn't go in and the Scudetto defending champions, they find a way. Sandro Tonali scoring the winner after making a, a bursting run from midfield and that was the difference in the end. Uh, Inter Milan had a 2-0 win over Salernitana and we had the Turin derby. Uh, Juventus getting a 1-0 win over Torino in this one with Mr Vlavic with his sixth goal of the season. Allegri hangs on. Just, yeah. I mean, we I don't really know if results matter to his job security at the moment. It feels like he will survive a nuclear <laughs> apocalypse at this point. But this was a, a battle of a match, which is the way that Derby should be. Milankovic Savic, the Torino goalkeeper, he had to be in very good form, although most of the saves he made were from long-range strikes. Um, he couldn't sto- stop Vlavic scoring the winner 60 minutes from the end, though, and... Uh, this result, I mean, I've got in my notes, will buy Allegri a bit of time. I I, I don't even know if I believe that. I don't, I, I'm not even sure what's going on with his situation, but it feels like he used the 3-5-2 formation in this match, and I think that's probably the best shape for Juvent- this Juventus team at this moment. So maybe some positives to take from that shape, and we maybe perhaps see Allegri build around that over the next few weeks, but I wouldn't count on it because his decision-making process doesn't seem to be very sound at the moment, so I anticipate Juventus being bad again soon. All right, we look forward to that. Bundesliga time, baby. Union Berlin, they remain top with a 2-0 win over Borussia Dortmund. Taylor, um, I've, I've said this before on this podcast, being a Dortmund fan must be like riding a roller coaster where you are great one week and then you take a massive dip for no reason the next week. Oh, I thought, and then in the for the purposes of this game, and then you realize halfway through that the roller coaster isn't finished and you are flying through the air. <laughs> uh, that is what happened to Kobo, uh, their goalkeeper for the opener. Uh, he had already made a mistake previously, but in the eighth minute, ball to him. He, I think what ends up happening is he goes to kick the ball long and his plant foot moves, so he ends up kicking his plant foot instead of the ball. Either way, uh, Union Berlin happy to uh, capitalize Aber there to, to score. Uh, and then even for the second goal, uh, Adeyemi tries to be cute for Dortmund with a little back heel. He instead plays it straight to Schaffer away. Uh, they go, and Union able to, to get the second goal, courtesy of a Jordan Peefock uh, layoff. So credit to him. He comes out with an injury, though. So uh, we'll see if we see much more of him Um in the short term, it was a nasty knock to his knee, is all that was reported at the time. But yeah, Dortmund very much giving Union those two goals. Union did well to score them, and you got to take your chances where you can. But still, this felt very much like a game that Dortmund lost just as much as Union won it. Yeah, Bayern Munich on Union Berlin's tails in second place with a 5-0 victory oh. over third place. Freiburg, nice top of the table clash there, Graham. You've written on our show notes, Graham. Chuba Moting is the Lewandowski replacement. Explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's maybe how Julian Nagelsmann sees it now. So he starts as the number nine in a four-two-three-one. Obviously, four-two-three-one being the formation that Bayern Munich used for a number of seasons with Lewandowski as the number nine. There's been this, some discussion this season about um, Bayern Munich missing Lewandowski and missing an orthodox uh, centre forward. They've used Serge Gnabry and Sadio Mane as, as a front two in games, a lot of games this season. So Nagelsmann has he he's decided now just basically that he's going to play Chupamoting as his number nine, and and it and it worked pretty well. He scored a very nice goal, got an assist, and I guess the debate might now shift to how he gives Bayern Munich balance, not just in the attack but also in their midfield, who I thought had a, a good, firm grip of this game, better than they've had for, for a number of weeks. So 
it's an interesting one because that is that is a twist in the tail that I didn't see coming. Stoke City's Chupa Moting being the replacement for Robert Lewandowski at Bayern Munich, but in terms of the balance of the team, maybe that is the best option for them right now. Yeah, fun times. Uh, fun times also for Frankfurt, Taylor. Eintracht Frankfurt 5, yeah. uh, Bayer Leverkusen 1. Uh, that's Xavi uh, Alonso's Bayer yeah. Leverkusen, as we shall now call them every week. And they... Uh, we should. They kept cutting to him, and he increasingly looked like, what have I done to myself for large <laughs> chunks of this game? Because he had plenty of individual mistakes not helping, but this was just Frankfurt ripping a- apart by our Leverkusen. Hrodetsky, the goalkeeper uh, for Leverkusen, afterwards goes over to the away supporters to apologize. He tries to get his teammates to go with him. They don't really do that. The away supporters give him an earful because this was very poor from Leverkusen in what has been a very poor season. For Frankfurt, a, a resounding victory. And anytime you get five goals, I think you got to be feeling good. Uh, and the Wolfsburg fans are demanding yeah. to hear about the 2-2 draw with Borussia Mönchengladbach. They shall. They shall because it was... Uh, a really, really fun game. Uh, a dominant performance from Marcus Turam, who got a brace. Uh, but the one that made me want to talk about this game was Omar Mar- Marmouche, a player that I was really not fam- familiar with at all before this weekend. But he steals the show, his equalizer to make it 2-2. It's a driven cross in, and he settles it. I believe it's with his left foot like facing away from goal. It goes off of his chest, and then he's able to turn and hit it with his right foot on the volley, kind of in the air. It's a little bit like the Salah play, where it's half of it is he knows exactly what he's doing half of it is uh like basically reacting in the moment and maybe one percent luck on top so it's 101 percent great goal overall though uh but really 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 fun this game and i would encourage people to at the very least watch that equalizer from marmouche wonderful stuff let's get to the any other business section aka the bit where we tell you how psg did it was le classique this weekend on Sunday evening, PSG won Marseille nil. Neymar with a goal bringing PSG back to winning ways. And Mbappe afterwards uh, mentioning that he does not want to leave the club in January. Yeah. Make of that what you will, Graham. Yeah, it was good of him to make those comments a full, what, four days after that report had come out <laughs> and at midnight after the second game he's played since that game is, that uh, that report came out. Yeah, I really believe you there, Killian. Um, this was a, a decent performance by PSG. They didn't need to be at their best, to be honest. I think without Paulo Lopez, it surely would have been more emphatic for PSG. He made so many saves, particularly in the first half. Lionel Messi smashed the crossbar with a free kick. Um, and against PSG, you want to limit, limit the number of chances in transition you give them and Marseille didn't do that at all in the first half so there were periods of this game where it felt like they were they were uh, they were hanging on right at the end of the first half they survive a three on two which is one of those quick transition moments I was talking about and then Harrit just gives PSG the ball straight back inside his own half and Mbappe sets up Neymar for a nice little finish off the inside of the post so Marseille have certainly played better this season the second half was better from them and they had a couple good chances of their own Donnarumma had to make a couple saves but then Gijou gets sent off for a bad tackle on Neymar and it was a bad tackle you know it's a bad tackle on Neymar when he's not rolling around he's just lying still on the ground and that was pretty much the end of the match after after that red card all right one that took some attention for american soccer fans was blythe versus afc wrexham uh, in the fa cup fourth qualifying round this one uh, making headlines because uh wrexham have finally John made it toaster. to yeah yeah <laughs> that we'll get to that that was the headline yeah <laughs> So this game was broadcast live on ESPN. So the Reynolds marketing project has finally made it uh, to another Disney uh, title. Uh, well done to them. Um, Taylor, did you watch this game? I did. I also feel like knowing the little bit about, that we know about Rob McElhenney from the Always Sunny podcast, 
Uh, I feel like he is loving that you call it the Reynolds Project and not the Reynolds McElhenney <laughs> Project, though I think he knows. He knows. Uh, yeah. I did watch this one, uh, and I will say this, the Montreal game, riveting by comparison, because man, was this uh, tough to watch at times. It was exactly what I expected non-league football to be. Uh, lots of enthusiasm from the Blythe supporters, especially when when they equalize off of a free kick that bounces into the side netting. Uh, I think wind was was blamed by the Wrexham players and manager, but uh, th- this was a a fun game to, like, have on. Mm. I wouldn't say it was a fun game to necessarily pay attention to, so I, I didn't try to do too much of that second so, one. Sounds sounds like you needed a slice of toast to cheer yourself up. What Graham, What is the toaster the joke? I don't know Paint the picture, please. Paint the picture, Graham. Go on, do it. Okay, so the TV cameras captured a Blythe Spartans fan, mm-hmm. Um, who, how can I describe this, had a toaster strapped to his head and on the toaster were the words John the Toaster. So I did a bit of digging into John the Toaster and apparently this is a man who goes around at social clubs and pubs and makes toast for people, which I'm all in favour of. I I follow Sterling Albion around. I was at Stennis Muir on Saturday and you get to know some of the travelling fans and none of those guys do anything for me. So imagine if some guy was just handing out toast. That'd be great. I would like that. I, I, oh I'd say, Graham, it's it's a lovely novelty, but A, I don't want to be behind Toaster Man because that's obscuring my view. Uh, and B, I hope he doesn't go to Bath because they don't go well with toasters <laughs> yeah. very well. It's got Yeah, and ener- energy prices the way they are right now. I can't imagine many pubs are welcoming John the Toaster. <laughs> Do not let that man in here. It's either he, he makes some toast or we turn all the lights off. Those are the options. Graham, yes. I'm, now I have questions because... John the Toaster, clearly written. It appears to be macrame around a toaster, so there's that. He's got foam on top of his head, so at least there's some cushioning. But there also appear to be lights, and then a power cord <laughs> running into his shirt, and I don't know what yeah. the power cord is plugged into, but that's the question I think we should all be asking. How is that toaster powered? What's going on? I'm fascinated by John the Toaster. I think we yeah, found this week's big thing episode, folks. I think <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what we've done. I mean, I'm in favor. <laughs> he plugs it in at random bars, so he must plug it in. He must be looking for outlets yeah. constantly. So many people must be, must be annoyed when he unplugs their iPhones with like 13% power charged. Because he's got to make some toast. Yeah, he un- he unplugged the floodlights at this game. You know, it, it gets dark around five pm <laughs> oh, in he- the UK. Oh, why is the floodlights not coming on? Oh, John the toaster again. Was he at Arsenal Leeds, Graham? That could explain things. That explains it. Uh, yes, of course. There we go. There we go. He wa- Prob- someone tried to put pop tarts in it once. He went absolutely mental, and everything <laughs> was burnt for the next four days until he calmed down. I don't know if that means that the pop tart made it burnt, or he was deliberately burning because somebody put a pop tart in, and he was pouting as a result. I I have more questions than I've answered also, about John. The also, toaster. does he take the toaster off his head to toast, or does he toast with the toaster on top of his head? He's I got mean, to keep it on. I think true, sure. cha- that true champions are? toast on the head, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping that he like they don't have a at his home. I'm presuming with his partner, they don't have a toaster like on the kitchen counter. He like straps it on as he gets out of bed and like <laughs> goes and makes the toast that way. <laughs> I hope that's the case. Anyway, uh, we spent a long time talking about a toaster. Uh, one more game I wanted to mention before I'm going to hand over to Joseph once more. Um, I started the show. Talking about the championship being drunk, there was a very drunk game. Sheffield United 3, uh, Blackpool 3, four red cards in this game. An 88th minute penalty miss, an injury time equaliser, and a mass brawl. I recommend, listener, you check that one out on social if you haven't already. The championship is a wonderful, wonderful league. And last on the show, but very much not least, Joseph Lowry, NWSL playoffs. Tell us about him. 
Yeah, so we had two games yesterday, the very first two playoff games this year. Ariana and I previewed them a bit last week, but Kansas City beat the Houston Dash 2-1 in the first game yesterday. It was a 100th-minute winner from Kansas City, 10 minutes into second-half stoppage time, so still in regulation. They are through to the semifinals. And then you have the San Diego Wave beating the Chicago Red Stars 2-1 with a 110th-minute winner from Alex Morgan. That one was actually in extra time. Both of these teams left it late, and there are some just excellent narratives. So, so it's San Diego meeting Portland in the semifinals. Portland finished second in the league this year. They won the NWSL Shield last year. They're a very good team. San Diego against Portland. San Diego as an expansion team. In the NWSL, no expansion team has ever made it to the playoffs, let alone won a game. San Diego have now done both of those things, in addition to setting a playoff attendance record, which they also did on Sunday at Snapdragon Stadium. That's one half of the bracket. The other half is the OL Reign, who won the NWSL Shield this year and racked up a nice $10,000 per player bonus along the way against Kansas City, a team who won three games, three games all of last season. They are now in the NWSL semifinals. These games are going to be fun. They're on October 23rd. Watch them. And uh, I would just say, I watched the San Diego game uh, and was shocked because Chicago gets the early goal and they... They have a moment when I think Ellie Wagner doing the commentary said, like, they've completed something like 40 passes in a row. Like, they just kept the ball. It seemed like they were going to cruise to a victory. Maybe they'd get one more. It would be a really easy 2-0 win. So it's a massive credit to San Diego for fighting back and getting that win. Credit to Alex Morgan for the winner. But the player that I definitely didn't have as much familiarity with at at the start of the game, I did by the end, was Sofia Jakobsen, who I praised Fede Valverde's engine earlier in the show. I will say Sofia Jakobsen got her engine at the same garage because, man, she did not let up. She attacked on that left channel the entire game. She really did spark a number of attacks that I think pulled San, San Diego back into it. So the, the big names, Alex Morgan, uh, Taylor Korniak, uh, having strong games, but uh, Sophia Jakobsen was the player that stood out to me and the player that I'm excited to keep watching in the playoffs. Wonderful stuff. Weekend reviewed. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions. Next time you're at a Richmond Kickers game, by the way, I think you should strap a George Foreman grill to your head and see how it goes. <laughs> I had a child on my head this weekend or on my shoulders this weekend. Maybe I'll add a George Foreman to that as well. Ryan, I can't believe that in the Drunken Championship segment, you didn't talk about Hull City having to have their goalposts sawed. That was one I thought for (laughs) sure would come up today. (laughs) Yes, they they had to have two inches taken off their goalposts because the goalposts were too big. So rather than like hammering the goal like two inches further into the ground, they got like a literally like a saw to cut the bottom of the posts off. It's like... It's like uh, when you need that research paper to just be a little bit longer, so you go with like maybe just above double space just to try to get some uh, added oomph to that paper. They, yeah. they Rather than get more accurate, nah, just make the goal two inches wider. We'll see what happens. I'm just wondering, like, wh- who left the technical area and went, wait a second, those goals are two inches <laughs> too big. That's what I want to know. Somebody who's dedicated. Uh, <laughs> uh, somebody, John the, John the tape measure man. He had a tape measure on his head. Yes. You run it out, you there see if the goals are the right size. <laughs> How long have Hull been getting away with this charade for? That's what I want to know. Anyway, Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always having you on the pod, sir. Yeah, right back at you, Ryan. And Graham Rutherford, you keep on trucking, bud. I will. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Listener, thank you so much for joining us on this intrepid adventure. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.